it's always such a joy to hear the testimony of those who uh, go through our membership and just uh, hear them continue to walk faithfully and pursue Christ hard, pursue after Christ uh, in such a manner. Well, as uh, Elder Bob prayed for you, prayed for us, uh, prayed for me, there are many uh, parents who are ill. My dad was admitted to the hospital this past Tuesday. He should have actually went in last Tuesday, but... He does not like hospitals. He does. He wants to uh, do anything possible to avoid that place. And uh, we finally convinced him to go uh, this past Tuesday. And he's got uh, pneumonia, and uh, he's responding to medication. And he's doing better. So thank you. Appreciate your support, and thank you for your prayers. Uh, read about Alice's mom and her eye surgery. Alice, uh, she's doing well. Praise God for that. Um, if you could just uh, maybe post on the website how she's doing and how further we can be praying for her. Nate's dad had uh, surgery and did a biopsy and one of the moles came out negative. And he already had surgery this past week and he's doing well. Great. Praise God for that. And Jane, Jason's father-in-law, went in for um, prostate cancer and he had surgery this past Thursday. Is that right, Jason? Thursday, and uh, he told us he's resting comfortably and doing well. So, uh, it's just uh, it's such a challenge for us. We need to be faithful to our family, to our parents, to our our wives, husbands, to our children. At the same time, uh, leaning forward in the world, and may God give uh, much grace to all of us as we seek to be faithful to Him in every way. It has been uh, a challenging week for me, you know, in my Either my mom or dad gets ill. That means uh, double time for me at my parents' store. So I <laughs> spent a lot of time selling a lot of keychains this week. And so, you know, you try to get some time in studying uh, Thomas Manton, but it's hard to do that when you're selling like 50 cents chocolate bars, you know, in between Thomas Manton. So, what a challenge. This past week as well, I had an opportunity to go out to UCLA, uh, CCM, and to preach the Word of God there. And, uh, you know, not didn't really know what to expect. It was my second time going there. I had a real good time of ministry. You know, I was sitting there and I had two sermons that I brought with me. Prodigal Son from Luke 15 on God's love. And Isaiah 6 on the holiness of God. And, uh, you know, just you know, sitting there five minutes, I thought to myself, these dear brothers and sisters, they don't need love of God. They need God's holiness. So <laughs> I preached on Isaiah 6. And, uh, you know, for the fir- one of the first times going to a college campus, I definitely sensed this uh, age gap, generation gap with the people there. I was surrounded by freshmen, and, man, they looked like kids from our children's ministry. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't look a few years over Lindsay or Derek. I was just... And I turned to one of them, and I said, you know, what year were you born? And he said, 1987. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I got a little angry. <laughs> To no fault of his own, but I just personally kind of got irked because that's the year I graduated high school. <laughs> so I'm almost twice their age, and so it was a very uh, heart-wrenching time of ministry seeing these young collegians, and you know, they're looking at me like this you know, old guy coming from you know, Cornerstone Bible Church. I'm thinking, I'm one of you guys, you know, I'm ministering, you know, but definitely, but a great time in ministry, and I'm um, just happy to report they received the word very well. There was a guy with a mohawk. I guess that's a new, in fashion, I guess, hairstyle. 
And he was jumping up and down how much he loved Isaiah 6 and encouraged he was. And so praise God, you know. <laughs> Even though he's half my age, he understands the Bible. So praise God for that. I'm also thankful to you for just all your words of encouragement, your emails and personal uh, notes of encouragement towards our study in John 17. Um, it really encourages my heart that so many of you are, are really... Um, focused on the Word, and benefiting so much from our study in John 17. It is uh, part 7 of our study, and I could easily see us going to double digits uh, in our study so far, but it encourages me to continue to, continue to labor in the Word uh, as I hear uh, God blessing you, encouraging you, really strengthening you, giving you greater resolve in your pursuit of Christ through our study in John 17. Well, let's get to our study for this morning. Our, our, past, our verse for today is verse 17, but to help us set up the context, let's read together verses 6 through 19, John 17. Well, you know what, let's start with verse 1. It's just five more verses. So, John 17, 1 through 19. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, verse 13, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Our study continues to be just on verse 17. 
those nine words that Christ prayed on the eve of His death. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And we discovered last week that Christ had a simple two-fold prayer for the eleven apostles gathered with them, with Him in the upper room. And these same two prayers are the prayers that He prayed for us and continues to pray for us. As He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but I ask also for those who will believe in Me through their word. Verse 20 tells us that the, the prayers that He prayed for the apostles were not just for them, but those same prayers He prayed for us, and He continues to pray for us these very things. And those two things are that the Father might keep them, that the Father might keep us, that the Father might not lose us, that no one might snatch us from our Father's hand. The second prayer is that, that they might be sanctified, that you and I might be sanctified. That is our Lord's supreme prayer for the believers, for you and I, and that must be our supreme prayer for ourselves and for one another. That ought to be our greatest concern in our lives, our greatest care, our greatest burden. If I were to ask you, what is your greatest burden in your life right now? It must not be cares of this world. It must not be, you know, my diet, you know, I'm gaining weight. Or, oh, my business is not doing as well as it should. Or my relationships at home. Or, oh, my, uh, my health, even health issues. Our chief concern that we cast to Christ is to be this. Our sanctification. First Peter 5, 7, Christ, uh, Peter says, Cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares about you. And so our supreme concern, our supreme burden that we cast upon Christ, is the burden that we have to be sanctified. Because this is, our, this is God's will for us. This is God's will for us. First Thessalonians 4, 3 again. This is the will of God. There ought not be any confusion concerning God's will for us. It is explicit. God's will for us is our sanctification, that we abstain from sexual morality. It tells us that God seeks not our happiness, but our holiness. God's aim is not to make us happy, but to make us holy. And let me read to you uh, from one of our members' Zenga sites. We've got you know, a bunch of members who are tech-savvy and they have uh, public diaries. You know, they write all their things, you know, post pictures, and it is a blast. It, you know, a brother named Eugene Kim wrote a, a um, Zenga this past week, and I was particularly blessed. I was going to ask you if I have permission to share this, but it's on the World Wide Web, so why do I need permission? <laughs> To share what strangers are reading online. So, amen. So he said, A few hours ago, my store was burglarized, and I'm guarding my store until a glass guy can get here this morning. They broke the glass of my door and took one of my registers 
and the cash inside. The irony is that before I left work, I was really anxious about my business. Much more than I had been for a while. I was worrying about hitting my growth goals I had said and about the liquidity for the upcoming winter season and all the bills and payroll taxes I have coming up. So much so that even one of my employees observing me asked what I was so worried about. So when I got the phone call from the police as I was getting ready for bed, I was thinking, geez, why now, Lord? Then in my heart, I was sharply rebuked. For all His ways are just. As I was driving over here, I came to the realization that His purpose is to discipline me and perfect my faith. James 1, 2-4. Hebrews 12, 5-6. He understood that God was doing all these things so that He might share in God's holiness for the maturation of His faith. And I actually became joyful. Even while I was cleaning up all the glass, I was praising God while thinking of Matthew 6.33 and thanking God for the usefulness of His Scriptures. Then it struck me, this is not right. This is not coming from me. This peace is truly supernatural. It is the peace of Christ in Philippians 4.7. I don't know what to say except that I am overcome with awe, and I feel I cannot express that adequately. Everything just seems so small because of the realization that He is so big. End quote. Man, so blessed by a Zenga site. Who would have thought? But so right, so biblical, and that's exactly what God is saying. Right? That God is doing all these things in our lives for our maturity, for our holiness, for our sanctification, for this is God's will. God's aim for us is not our comfort. It's not our pleasure. It's not our happiness. If you seek such things, that's God of deism, where God exists for us. The God of the Scriptures exists as a thrice holy God. And he said in Leviticus 19.2, Be holy as just as I am holy. And because of his thrice holy nature, his chief desire for us is that we might share in his holiness. What Jesus did not pray for, he is not praying for their salvation. He is not praying for their justification. We studied this last week. Their salvation, and if we are indeed children of God, our salvation is assured and secure. We do not need to be saved again. There is no fear that God might get sick of us and abandon us to be adopted by some, someone else. No, He's not praying for their or our salvation. He's not praying that only some of His disciples are sanctified. This is the will of God for every Christian. Every follower of Christ, that is God's will for him or her. He is not praying for some special experience. He is not praying for some one-time event or occurrence, but a daily process of walking in the Spirit. And finally, he is not praying for the world, that the world might be sanctified. Our Lord's concern is that you and I would be sanctified. And as your shepherds, that is our concern. 
that is our heart. You know, that is, I suppose, and I, no, that is why, you know, we are, you know, I, and I am so passionate as I preach at Cornerstone. When I preach like at CCM at UCLA, when I go to churches to speak, I mean, I am passionate because of the Word. But as I look into the congregation, they're strangers to me. I don't know them. And I love them in Christ, but I can't care for them personally because I don't know them. But preaching at Cornerstone, ministering here, all the flock shepherds, pastors can attest to, it is a whole different experience. As we shepherd you and teach the Word of God, there is an edge. There is a depth of passion because we know you personally. And there is such a longing in our hearts for your sanctification, for your maturity. We so want you to grow in Christ and to live a life, a manner worthy of Christ. Before the world, before the church universal, our first concern is for believers at Cornerstone. That is not just our experience, but that is the reality. That is the truth. That is biblical. Christ is praying for the church. That is His concern and will for the church. And that is our concern and that is our desire for you. Well, let's move on to what Jesus actually did pray for. Remember last week, we looked at how Christ pried prayed for their sanctification. Verse 17, sanctify them. The Greek word is hagaizo, which has two senses. The first sense is to be set apart for God. To dedicate, to consecrate. In the Old Testament, it was things and people. New Testament, it was always for people. To dedicate people to the work of God. And that was Christ's first sense of praying for the apostles and for, and for us. That we would be set apart from this world. And the trappings of this world. To be set apart for His purposes. The second sense, the sense more familiar to us, is the idea of holiness, purity, to be cleansed from sins. And we studied in depth those two ideas. And then we went into... Um, four significances for this prayer. Four significances. What, what this prayer means for us. First of all, this pray, prayer tells us that this is the way for us for verse 15 to be fulfilled in our lives. This is the way verse 15 is fulfilled in our lives. Christ prayed to the Father that He would not take us out of this world but that the Father would keep us from evil. Now, how does the Father keep us from evil? Luke 11, how does the Father keep us from temptation? It is not through some miracle. It's not through some supernatural intervention or we are headed towards sin or lightning strikes. You know, we're tempted towards some kind of evil and an angel of God appears with a, a blazing sword and, uh, you know, cuts trees or we can't cross towards uh, uh, evil deeds. That's not how we are kept from evil. The way we are kept from evil is by pursuing sanctification. It is through normative ways. 
It is not by praying to God that God would you one day deliver us from the sin that we're involved in. No, it is by waking up to the will of God that it is our sanctification that's God's will and repenting of our sins, changing our direction and making step-by-step decisions toward sanctification. This is how we fight evil temptations in, the, in our lives. Second significance is that this is the God-ordained way in which He will save His people in the world. Not only is this the way believers are kept from evil, this is the God-ordained means by which He will save His people. Verse 18, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Here we see a direct correlation between holiness and evangelism. He's telling us, verse 17, sanctify them because I have sent them into the world. And if they are not a holy people, they will make no impact in this world. They will be like salt that has lost its saltiness. What good is it? It's good only to be thrown out to the streets to be trampled on by men. Salt that is not salty has no use, has no purpose. Father, sanctify your people. Sanctify your church. Because that is the only way they will be successful in proclaiming the gospel to the lost, resulting in salvation of the elect. It is the only way that they will be powerful. They will be an, make an impact. The only way that men will be saved because this is God's ordained way. This is how we impact and influence others for Christ. It is not by becoming like them. It is not through some methodology. It is not through having them liking us, through some marketing scheme. It is not through some mass meetings or special people who have special powers to convert the lost. The way we are called to impact the world is individual is through our lives, individually, the power of each believer, living in holiness, engaging the lost with the gospel. We would want there to be some methodology. We want some trick or marketing technique. We want some special speaker or pastor to come and save our family members, save our friends, save our co-workers. But that's not the ordained means. God's will is for your sanctification so that you might make a powerful impact in the people that are in your life. Therefore, this tells us that evangelism begins and ends not in the world. But evangelism begins and ends in our hearts. Where does evangelism start? In our hearts. And whether there is holiness in our hearts. The supreme and watershed issue in evangelism is not the heart condition of the world. Well, I can't go evangelize to this college because they're so close. You know, my co-workers, their hearts are so hardened. Now that nation is, I believe, forsaken by God because their hearts are so calloused. That's not the issue. The issue is what is the condition of your heart? Is your heart callous to the Word of God? 
Is your heart hardened to God's word concerning sanctification? Is your heart obstinate and rebellious towards God's clear instructions about, about living in obedience to Christ? If your heart is soft and tender and open to God's word and inclined towards sanctification, the hardest heart will melt before such a holy man or a holy woman of God. It's the issue. That's why evangelism is so tough because it forces us to confront ourselves. That's why we struggle with evangelism because it is a time for us to confront our own hearts and we'd rather not do that. So it's easy for us just to read the Bible, go to church, go to flock, you know, pray the prayers and go to retreats and not engage the world and engage the sin that is in the world. Because to do that, we, we understand, requires our sanctification, our holiness. And so that's where we must begin. That's where we must go. You know, I, when I counsel people and they say, Pastor James, you know, I'm struggling with word life. You know, I'm struggling with the Bible. My Bible reading is weak. You know, I don't really you know, meditate on Scripture. You know what I tell them to do? Read the Bible. I have a difficult time with the Word. Let's read it together. A guy comes and says, you know, my prayer life is in the dumps. You know, I don't pray. Well, let's pray right now. Right, go pray. You know, I struggle with fellowship. Let's fellowship right now. Go fellowship. Someone comes to me and says, Man, Pastor Jesus, I struggle with evangelism. The last thing I say is go evangelize. What do I say? Oh, you're struggling with evangelism? Don't evangelize. Go read your Bible. Go pray. Go repent of sin. Go fellowship with holy believers. Because evangelism, to make an impact, is our sanctification, is our walk with God. Evangelism, ministry, is an overflow of our walk with God and the resultant holiness. And that is the only way because the God-ordained way for us to make an impact in this world. That's why it is so difficult. I, mean, I talked about this last week. You know, it's easy to do a lot of things. Sanctification is the hard and, and rough journey that really few believers ever truly attempt. But may God grant all of us to, to really make an attempt at personal sanctification because of the mission that He has given to us Third significance of Christ's prayer is found in verse 19. And guys, you know, I may be a hyperbolic in my sermon. You know, I use superlative adjectives maybe far too often, but this really is awesome. <laughs> this really is, you know, incredible, mind-boggling. The third significance is we must be sanctified because... This is why, this is one of the main reasons why Jesus sanctified Himself. Jesus set Himself apart to go to the cross so that you and I might be sanctified and set apart for God. Verse 19, Christ said, verse 17, I sanctify them. Verse 18, I sent them into the world. Verse 19 tells us, why? Father, sanctify them because for, for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And look at verse 19. The, it's the same Greek word, consecrate and sanctified. 
but it's two different senses. Christ is not saying, I sanctify myself, meaning I purify myself from sin, so that they might be purified. That makes no sense. In fact, that is impossible. Christ is the sinless, thrice holy Son of God in flesh. He does not need any sanctification. There is no impurity in Him. There is no blemish or defect, temptation or sin in Him for Him to be sanctified. He's using that word Hagaizo in the first sense, meaning, I set myself apart so that they might be pure. Now what does Christ mean, I set myself apart? It means this, in the eternal counsel of God, God the Father said, Sin is into the world. My people are lost in sin, enslaved to sin and death. Who will pay the penalty? Who will pay the pavement so that they might be saved? Who will pay the cost? Who will sacrifice? Who will die on the cross so that they might be saved? And Jesus said, Here am I. Send me. The Son, because He loved the Father, said, Father, I set myself apart. I dedicate myself. I consecrate myself to do Your will for Your glory. I put my life, though I could cling to my rights as God, and I don't have to dedicate myself, consecrate myself to anyone, though I am God, I relinquish the rights that I have as God, and I put myself entirely in Your hands, at Your disposal, and You can use me as You like for the redemption of Your people. And that's exactly what He did. Holding nothing back, He gave Himself entirely to the Father's will. Let me just illustrate this a little bit further. We are familiar with the idea of a man joining the army to fight for his country. You enlist in the armed forces, and what are you doing? You're giving up your free will. Right? The commander in charge says, Charge! They're firing live ammo at you. Charge! You charge! Take that hill! You take that hill! Right? You sacrifice your life for the betterment of your fellow soldiers, you do that. You give up your comforts, your pleasures. You give up your priorities, your decisions, your preferences. You give up your business. You give up your work. You give up your livelihood. In fact, you give up your home, even your family. You leave that all aside. You join the armed forces and you devote yourself, you consecrate yourself to serve your country. He is a man who gives himself exclusively to this task. And it means giving up everything else. And that's, what, that's exactly what our Lord did. In heaven He said, I'll do it. I'll dedicate myself. I'll give my life over to you, Father, and do with me as you will. And even if it means receiving your wrath, anger, and judgment on the cross, and dying a humiliating death, I will do it. And, and that will secure the salvation of my people and also the sanctification of my people. And that's what he's saying in verse 19. For their sake, I consecrate myself. For their sake, here I am on the eve of the cross. I see it. I can see it clearly now. I see what will happen to me. I see the pain, torture, agony that awaits me. The spiritual torment that is imminent. And I'm not backing down, Father. I am not, I'm not 
straying to the left or right, I consecrate myself. I am setting myself apart for the cross so that you and I might be sanctified. That is the third significance for us. That for us, we might complain and say, oh, it's so hard, sanctification. Oh, I have to sacrifice. You know, I have to fight this temptation. I have to fight my flesh in this or that way. But we must not forget, sanctification is possible because of what Christ did, according to verse 19, in the sacrifice, the consecration that He committed Himself to, to make it possible for us. That's the price that was paid, not just for our salvation, but for our sanctification. Right, think about that again. Christ paid the penalty. Christ paid the payment, not just to save us, but for us to be sanctified as well, for us to live the Christian life. Finally, the final significance, it's kind of tied to the second one. Our sanctification is the key issue in our usefulness to the Lord in the church. Our sanctification is the key issue in our usefulness to the Lord. Our usefulness is directly tied to the degree of our sanctification. You know, um, you know, I don't know how, you know, this is how, you know, this is how it is. I, I don't know how to say this, but when I share with myself, um, it's, it's, it's not comfortable. But, as I say all the time, all I know is my life, your life, and the books I read for illustration. So, the way God wired me is, you know, I love truth. Man, I am, you know, the reason, one of the reasons I get passionate is when I hear truth, speak truth, it really pumps me up. It stirs my heart at a deep level. Whether it's a song, I hear a song and the lyrics, there's truth there, man, it pumps me up. When I read a book, you know, when I see a movie, right? And when Rocky says, I can't beat him, man, that pumps me up. I don't know why. That just moves my heart. Like, right? So, I, I just love truth. I try to speak the truth. Right? So, this is the truth. Okay? Uh, Lou Priolo were driving la- you know, after Sunday night. It was all over. He hadn't had dinner, so we took him out to have dinner. And we're talking about Cornerstone and we're, you know, how good it is and the problems that we have here at a church. And he asked me, James, what are the three things you would change about Cornerstone? What three things would you want to change about Cornerstone? And you know, like, by God's grace, I was able to share with him biblical truth. I said, Luke, you know, to be honest, there are a lot of things I want to change, but really, uh, what I want to change is about myself. The issue is not with Cornerstone. issue is with me. And there are many things that I want to change about me. Definitely there are top three things I want to change about who I am. And that's my concern. That's my burden. And Cornerstone is a consequence of that. Because I understand that if my heart changes, if I grow in holiness and humility and righteousness, you know, my wife, my children, and Cornerstone will receive that change and they'll benefit and they'll change as well. The issue is not cornerstone change for my benefit. The issue really is my life, my heart. And I understand that's the truth. The greatest need for cornerstone is my holiness. 
and it goes for everyone here. You want to be a better flock shepherd? You know, all your intern pastors out there, or seminarians, you want to be a better pastor? You know, small group leaders, you want to be a better small group leader? What about your husbands out there? You want to be a better husband? Instead of focusing on how your wife needs to change, can you say the truth that it's me? That the person that needs to change in our family is me? All you wives out there, you have a long laundry list about your husbands, but can you honestly say it's me? You fathers and moms out there, you singles out there, you minister, whether you're a minister, servant, or friend, can you say the key issue in my life in being useful to the Lord is my holiness. That's the only thing preventing me from being a better fill-in-the-blank is my lack of holiness. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 2. 20 and 21. Apostle Paul's last letter to his, to his son in the faith. He is writing from a dungeon. He's all by himself. All these first false teachers, their churches are flourishing. Hundreds of thousands of people are gathered around. These false teachers who teach them what their itching ears want to hear. And here is the true Apostle Paul, forsaken by everyone, alone in a dungeon about to be uh, beheaded. And he shares parting instructions and exhortations and challenges to Timothy. And what does he share in chapter 2? Timothy, you want to have a successful ministry? You want to have a long-term ministry that honors the Lord? Timothy, forget about others. Be concerned about your own holiness. You want to be useful to the Lord, be concerned about your own sanctification. And he uses this illustration in verse 20. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. He's using an illustration of a large house whose owner were affluent, were wealthy, and they had many, many furnishings to be used by the occupants of the house. Skewots, vessel. The word is used for a wide variety of domestic implements, utensils, furnishings. I think he's talking about essentially plates, bowls, jars, right, forks and knives, those kinds of things. And Paul saying, in a large house, there are different kinds of vessels, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. So honorable use, it's like, you know, fine china, fine porcelain. They put it on the walls. And when special guests come, right, they bring out those, that fine china from uh, their the cabinet, from, from the kitchen, and they use fine porcelain to serve their meals, Right? And then there is other vessels for dishonorable use. And he's talking about, in our context, the plastic bowl with which we feed Fido. Right? He's talking about the bowls that are trash can. Right? You have a plastic or a, or a stainless steel trash can. We have like a trash can for the backyard. Right? We have a toothbrush that we use to you know, clean out our kitchen or our bathroom. Right? We have... You, uh, uh, furnishings, 
that are made of different material, cheaper material that are used for dishonorable use. And he's talking about in a house, they're set apart. You would not mix the two. You would not use a vessel interchangeably. And I have an illustration. Uh, years ago, years ago, a guy came to our potluck with a plastic bowl with jello. So, you know, people are eating all that jello. And like towards the end of the dinner, one guy said, Man, that, that plastic bowl looks familiar. Isn't that the bowl you use to wash your hands and your feet? And it's like, yeah, that's what, that's, I mean, I use that for my hands and my feet, but I cleaned it out, I wiped it out, very clean, and I made jello in it, and I'm serving you guys. <laughs> Praise God, I didn't touch that jello. <laughs> but everybody at that potluck that had a bite of that jello, they were so angry. Man, they were so bitter. Wouldn't you be, right, if you ate jello off the bowl, and he used that yesterday to wash his feet? Say, hey brother, you don't do that. Let me tell you, you don't need Martha Stewart to teach you this. That when you use a bowl for your feet, you don't use that for food. Well, that is what Paul is saying here. Right? Clearly set apart. You would never use dishonorable askewas for honorable use and vice versa. But in ministry, in the church with believers, it is not, it's different. It is different. He's making a contrast. Right? The bowl, the wooden bowl, you can't help being a wooden bowl. Uh, porcelain cup, you can't help but being a porcelain cup. It's fixed. But in the church, the issue is not your material, but your cleanliness. He's saying our usefulness is not predetermined. You can't say, oh, I'm wood. Oh, man, I'm cheap material. Right? I can never be a leader in a church. I can never serve God. I can never lead people to Christ. I can never be a spiritual influence because my material is not good. And it's obvious because my lack of fill in the blank. I'm not smart. I'm not quick-witted. I'm not godly. I'm not spiritual. I'm not, you know, I don't know, funny. I'm not athletic. I'm not, you know, I don't have a dynamic personality. I'm shy. My material is of such that I can't be useful to the Lord. So I'm just that wooden pot for ignoble use. And some other people, they're leaders because in God's sovereignty, they're just made out of the right stuff. Right? They're, made, they're born in this way, and that's why they're spirit, they make spiritual impact in the world. Paul's saying, how is that true? But in the church, that's not the case. The key issue is not your, your material, but it's your cleanliness. It's your sanctification. It's your holiness. That's the only issue that matters in terms of your usefulness to the Master. Verse 21. Therefore, a better translation is but. It's a contrast. It's not continuation. But if any man... Not a vessel he's talking about, but a human being, a Christian. If any Christian, any believer, cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Isn't that awesome? Think about that. For you... Your usefulness to the 
to God is not beyond your control. It's not, in a human way, predetermined. It's not preordained. Yes, God is sovereign, but we don't know. You don't know. Right? God is, what God is saying is, yes, I'm sovereign, I preordained it, but I'm also saying, if you will clean yourself from sin, you'll be useful to me and I will use you. And only I know to what extent you will be used. We can't say, I can't be used by God because, fill in the blank, no. With believers, it's up to us, it's up to you. Right? See, you and I, we can't tell what potential lies within a person to be used by God. It's impossible. Right? In sports, you can tell. In school, you can tell. Just look at your GPA. High school GPA, you can tell how he's going to do in college, right? You can tell in business. Look at his resume. Oh, this guy is going to be, or this girl is going to be, right? But not in ministry. You can't tell. Second Corinthians 5.16, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We can't apply worldly lists of a, of a, a, a powerful, effective minister of the gospel and apply, apply it in, in ministry. Because those external things don't matter. Only the cleanliness of a person's heart. This has happened in ministry time and time again. Right? For example, in the, in the sports world, we talk about who's the next Michael Jordan. Right? And we go through a laundry list of external characteristics that we look for in a guy and say, oh, maybe Harold Miner, maybe next Michael Jordan, baby Jordan. Right? Or Kobe Bryant. Or LeBron James. Or Joe Pio, right? We go, no, definitely not. Next Michael Jordan, right? We used to do this in seminary. We'll sit there and look around. Once in a while, look around and go, who is the next John MacArthur, right? It's got to be one, you know, one a year, right? No, <laughs> one every generation. So maybe one of us here, maybe it's him, you know? He looks like him. I don't know be him, right? Or he's got his voice. But you can't tell. In ministry, it's amazing. There are guys, you look at him and it's like, Unimpressive. I don't know what illustrations to use, so I'll just make one up right now. That makes sense. Like Peter Smith. I don't want to keep using him, but you look at Peter Smith, and you don't look at him and go, wow! Right? You know, there's Martin Luther, if I ever saw one. There's R.C. Sproul. You talk to him, and it's like a normal guy. Right? Nothing special. Right? You play soccer with him, he's okay, but you can't tell by like, Talking with him, it's external, you know, look at his ministry, there's like 10 people there, 20 people. You can't tell externally. Why? Because it's not about, you know, external makeup. It's not about personality. It's not, not about physical attributes. It's not about, you know, tone of voice or, or height or anything like that. It's about if any man cleanses himself from sin, he'll be useful to the Master. I mean, that's, that's powerful, that's encouraging, and that's challenging as well. Verse 21, cleanses. At kathairo, an int intensified form of kathairo, which means catharsis. It means to clean out thoroughly, to completely purge. Another idea is to cut. If anybody cuts these things out of his life, or purifies, cleanses himself, Paul says, he will be a vessel for honorable use. He will be set apart as holy. He will be useful to the master of the house. He will be ready 
for every good work. Right? Just last point. We're going to talk about this next week more, but just to kind of give you a heads up, how does a believer cleanse himself? Cleanse himself? How does this happen? How can you and I cleanse ourselves so that we will be vessels for honor? Go to the next chapter. Right. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and beneficial. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete competent, able, equipped for every good work. What prepares a man to be clean so that he will be used by the master of the house and the church is through the Word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. So it is through the Word of God, through teaching, reproof, correction, training and righteousness, through which we clean our lives from sin that we might be used of the Lord. Just one closing thought. What is the need of our church cornerstone? And I think about that. What does our church need? Yeah. Now we need you know, a better website. No, I never think that. You know, that's the last thing we need. You know, we need, I don't know, a better logo or a better sign outside. Or maybe we need a building. That's what we need. No, we don't need any of these things. What do we need? We need holy elders. We need holy flock shepherds. We need holy small group leaders. We need believers who are holy. That is the critical need of our church. So as we pray for one another, let's pray. Aligning ourselves with Christ's prayer, let's pray for one another's sanctification this week. Oh, Holy Father, we study this prayer and we pray this prayer because you are the author and perfecter of our faith. You are holy and we are utterly uh, strangers, foreigners to holiness. So we know now where even to start. We are at a loss. But our comfort is you are a personal God who hears the prayers of your people and you have promised that if we call out to you, and ask anything in your name, in your will, you will answer us. So we pray this because this is the explicitly revealed will of God for our holiness. So, oh God, we pray to you. We desperately cry out to you. We live in a sinful world, in a dark world, Lord, full of sin and temptation. And Lord, your people set apart, we cry out to you and ask you that you would help us and you would make us holy. You would set us apart. You would consecrate us. Oh Lord, you would cleanse us through your word so that we would stand out as light in this world that we might snatch others from the fire. Oh Lord, thank you for praying for us. May your prayer be a reality and realized in each heart of believers here in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.